Nothing prepares you for the complexity of the political situation, the partisanship, and being a doc trying to do your job. Welcome back to part two of the Permanente Medicine Podcast. I'm Chris Grant, your host and chief operating officer of the Permanente Federation. And we're back with Dr. Carmona, the 17th Surgeon General of the United States. We're now in 2002. And you were nominated by President George W. Bush and unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate to become the 17th Surgeon General of the U.S. During your confirmation hearings, senators on both sides of the aisle praised you for your qualifications and advocated vigorously for your confirmation, something that seems almost incomprehensible in today's society and really the divisiveness that we now see in both houses. It's rare to find politicians that are willing to reach across the aisle. Do you think it's still possible today? I'll comment first, Chris, on the fact that uh, what hurts me most is the truth of the statement you just made, that we can't have civil discussion. We can't agree to disagree. We don't remember that the founding fathers told us that democracy is predicated on compromise. One person doesn't walk away with everything. Those of us who are in positions of leadership have the duty and obligation to do the best we can for the greater good. And if everybody's happy, you're probably not doing your job because we're such a diverse world. You know, we see it playing out today and uh, all too often, the divisiveness that defies facts or logic all to play to tribal instincts on each side of that aisle. And it's terrible. I mean, democracy is being tested. But, you know, I have confidence that it's going to right itself sooner or later. I think it has to. And I think that ultimately, integrity, honest people will emerge and step up and tell the truth. And I think once we come through this, we will be stronger. And I hope we will make appropriate memorialization, modifications of our guiding documents to be able to incorporate what we've recently experienced so that it will never happen again. I believe you're right, and I absolutely hope you're right. I think what's considered acceptable civil discord and what's expected of civility is being tested, but I think integrity and honesty ultimately prevail. So you were nominated to be the Surgeon General of the United States by George W. Bush, Mm -hmm. Republican president. Yes. yes. And I remember you telling me a story of Ted Kennedy, uh, a leading Democratic (laughs) senator, calling you up and inviting you to his home to get to know you better and also to provide some fatherly advice on the confirmation process. (laughs) You remember that story? Yes. Think about about a— Do you want me to tell that story? I do. And think about a period of civility and what we need to get back to. Tell me about what made that so memorable. Well, there was a lot of things memorable. Teddy Kennedy was uh, chair of my confirmation committee, and I got to know him a bit. So the story you're talking about is when I finally got my confirmation committee, a meeting, I went to Senator Kennedy's office, and I was, you know, a little intimidated. So I went in, and the staff prepared me for the talk. They said, so let us tell you, he has two offices. This office here, if he talks to you here, it's going to be business. But if he likes you, he's going to take you into his private office. And there's a dog there. And it's like a museum of the Kennedy family. Mm. And I ended up in that office. 
and an hour meeting went three hours. Beautiful. And we talked about everything. And I saw, irrespective of the politics, this was a guy who was knowledgeable, whose heart was in this. Irrespective of any of the other things and whatever allegations there were, this was a smart guy. Right. We had a nice relationship. So when I then saw him on the day of confirmation, you know, I was told to come to the uh, Senate anteroom at 9 a.m. You're going to have your Senate confirmation hearing. I got there a little early. I was pacing, you know, diaphoretic, tachycardic, because you realize <laughs> those senators have your life in their hands now sure. for the next few hours. And they can grill you on anything oh, they want. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like taking your boards in public. Not even your boards, because your boards are defined to a scope of competence. It's your whole life. It's your whole life, you know, and everything you've ever learned and you didn't learn. Right. And, and they can make an example of you for some issue that's theirs that has nothing to do with your confirmation. That's the way they play the game. So the Senator Kennedy came out, and I was with my wife, and he shook my hand, and he said, Rich, uh, thank you for your, your willingness to serve again, and... Uh, I just want to prepare you that, you know, some of my colleagues can be a bit partisan, but don't, you know, don't take it personally. This is politics. They may ask you some questions that you think are off base, but just go ahead and answer them. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. He's holding my hand and he's got his other hand on my shoulder and he's looking at me like the best thing I can describe to you is how I looked at my son when I sent him to his first tour in combat. Mm. Do you really know what you're getting into? Mm -hmm. And he's telling me how tough it is in Washington and family issues and everything. He said, so I'm going to give you some advice. You probably are not going to understand it. But after you get immersed in the beltway, you will understand what I'm telling you. And he's holding my hand, really gripping it tight. His other hand's on my shoulder. He says, when you come to Washington, if you want a friend, you need to bring a dog. <laughs> and I said, Senator, I've heard that before. I believe that's Harry Truman. I understand he looked me in the eye and he said, you are clueless. Mm. And I was clueless because nothing prepares you for the complexity of the political situation, the partisanship, and being a doc trying to do your job. So we had a conversation standing out this side of the room and I said, well, Senator, it's a little after nine. I think respectfully we should get in because I don't want to be late. He said, we will walk in together. I'm the chairman. You will not be late because you're walking in with me. Mm. And I went in. And I had my Senate confirmation hearing. So the culmination of this was a few years later, I was testifying. You, you testify a lot as Surgeon General on different topics. And I was at a meeting. The meeting was delayed a little bit. And usually when that happened, you'd go mill around with the senators and talk to them. And Teddy was there. And I went over, Senator, I said, nice to see you again. And every time I saw him, I always, always thank him. He always told me, you don't have to thank me anymore. I said, no, you, you were very kind to me. You gave me good advice. But I said, Senator, on this day, I said, I want to tell you, uh, about the advice you gave me. And he looked at me, he said, you mean about the dogs? I said, yes, Senator, I do. And he said, so you finally understand me now, don't you? Mm. I said, Senator, I do, but respectfully, I disagree with you. And he kind of was aghast. He said, sure. he was like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> Senator, I'm a smart street kid. And uh, it's come to my attention that when you come to Washington, uh, you need to bring at least two dogs. Mm. And he smiled. He said, well, I don't understand why. I said, well, because during your tenure, at least one of those dogs is going to turn on you. <laughs> and he gave me a big hug. And he said, that's better advice than I gave you. <laughs> and he said, can I use it in the future? <laughs> so that's the story. <laughs> so now, so now, now he's quoting for the, for the next decade Dr. Richard Carmona's advice. That's, that's wonderful. This is a guy. Yeah, yes, I know he was very liberal and the, the conservatives didn't like. But this is a guy 
who understood the, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, CMS. He understood the nuts and bolts of the system. He understood the, the, you know, the challenges of uh, health disparities, social right. determinants of health. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I know where he was politically, but I, I mean, again, rather than putting a label on a person, why don't we listen a little bit more, you know? Let's move a bit forward. Today, vaping and e-cigarettes have seen dramatic uptake in youth. During a time where tobacco was still a major funder of politicians, you released a statement that warned people about the dangers of smoking. What advice or caution are you now providing on vaping and e-cigarettes? Great question, Chris. Thank you. Vaping is very much misunderstood in our country. Now, when you get to vaping, you have all the hookup lounges and things. Right. So I'm going to limit my remarks right now to e-cigarettes because as far as I'm concerned, you should not be breathing anything into your body that you don't know what it is and what the consequences are going to be. First of all, this is a very complex issue. So what we have to understand first and foremost is that the concept of an e-cigarette has merit when you look at it through the lens potentially for what they call harm reduction, okay? That is, Joe is smoking camels or Marlboro or whatever, and he's bringing in all these carcinogens, Mm -hmm. okay? And he's addicted to it because of nicotine. Right. Okay. So what if I have an e-cigarette, which is a misnomer, because all it is is glycol, water, propellant, and nicotine, and I'm giving him a nicotine fix, but he doesn't get all the carcinogens. Mm -hmm. That's the premise for harm reduction. People say, well, why would you do it that way? Well, we give him gum with nicotine. We give him a patch with nicotine. So an e-cigarette, the behavioral psychologists say, actually helps to reinforce that you're still smoking. You're more likely to stay with it. And in the real world, what you'd like to do then is taper them off that nicotine so they never want nicotine again. That's ideal. It hasn't worked that way. Mm -hmm. Because for many years before it was regulated, we had no confidence in the supply chain because we had e-cigarettes coming from all over the world. And they were adulterated. They had all kinds of chemicals and things in them, Mm -hmm. and people didn't know what they were getting. So then we had the issue of putting in the flavors and kids being attracted to it. And the tobacco industry then buying some of the e-cigarette companies, which to me was, okay, this is no good. You can't sell harm reduction if one of the tobacco companies owns it. Mm -hmm. So if it's in in a controlled environment, say the prescription only, if we did that, and a doctor wrote for an e-cigarette, but it's an e-cigarette that only had a certain amount of nicotine in it, that we knew the supply chain, that it wasn't adulterated, that FDA regulated it, which is what I always said, then I think I could support that, okay? Sure. But now what we've had is e-cigarettes that are coming from every place. Now the regulation has started, but before not regulated, you have now THC, Mm -hmm. uh, CBD, vitamin E put in there. And now we're finding there can be deaths or pulmonary disease from additives that nobody even knew were in there or people who said, well, you get high on this too, so why don't you have some THC? Or we'll put CBD because... The word is CBD cures everything, okay? And we have no science to support any of that, but they put CBD in it. So this becomes a very complex issue. Where would you like to see the United States in 10 years when it comes to tobacco, vaping, e-cigarettes, and smoking cessation strategies? Well, in in, in a perfect world, if, if I'm looking through the lens of what's best for the public, and again, we get into problems because in a democracy, people have the right to choose. Mm -hmm. And often the argument becomes the right of the individual versus the collective right of society. So in the future, one of the things that I had said to my colleagues on the Hill, look, I I understand you all are arguing that these folks who grow tobacco, families have been there. They're legendary. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. I don't want to upset the economy. I don't want to put them out of business. But why don't we be innovative? 
what if we let them be farmers, but we have them growing some healthy crops and we subsidize them to grow those crops as we taper them off tobacco? Wouldn't that benefit the nation? Wouldn't it keep them in the business? But of course, the special interest is like, oh no, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. And, and if you look at where that money is distributed, you can see how some politicians are going to vote. Okay. And they will argue, even guys who don't smoke, well, but it's their right to smoke. Mm -hmm. But Senator, Congressman, it is, but here's what it's costing us. So I would hope at some point we continue and we have, where smoking becomes a reportable event. And it's almost there now. One of the reasons is it's become so politically unfeasible. If you light up in a restaurant here in, in Berkeley or Oakland, every, all eyes are going to be on you, okay? You're not allowed to anyway. But the point is, the younger generation, it's unacceptable. I think we're heading in the right direction. I'm happy that we didn't have to legislate it, but sometimes legislation is necessary to protect the nation. Again, individual right versus collective right. And that is one of the struggles and dilemmas on so many issues. But I'm glad that you've illuminated the nation on the responsibility to everybody that's around us. In fact, I think the greatest opportunity for individuals to finally quit and to get both the help and the willpower is at a life transition, right? It's the birth of a child or the death sometimes of somebody that they knew and cared about. And you know, about. Chris, what's interesting, uh, I, I'd like to put it out over the air too. Even if you've been smoking 30 or 40 years, if you stop, there are health benefits from stopping. Right. Okay? You, you're never going to go back to the 25-year-old healthy guy or 15-year-old healthy guy, but you will slow the progression of disease. Okay? Your breathing will be better. Your emphysema won't suffer as much and so on. So don't say at 60, well, I've, I've already done it for 30 years. No. You will do much better if you stop at any age. And you will live longer. So that's an important <laughs> message for, for all of our listeners. Yes. I want to bring us to a conclusion here. And I, and I, and I want to- Chris, I'm having fun. I am too. I, <laughs> I am. don't get to talk to you much anymore. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I enjoy being around you, Rich. You're just one of my heroes. <laughs> and speaking of that, you know, we all receive a lot of plaques and, and lucite blocks. And, <laughs> you know, I have an office that's covered with them. And one of the most precious gifts I've received was from you a decade ago. And it was a little coin, no larger than a silver dollar, and it was engraved by the 17th U.S. Surgeon General. Yeah. And I had that sitting on my desk, mm -hmm. and my son was, was in my office, and <clears throat> he picked it up, and he was looking at it. And I told him a bit of the story of how it came to be given to me by you. And he asked me if he could borrow it. And I thought it was unusual, but I said, sure. Several months went by, and I learned that that little U.S. Surgeon General coin was his good luck charm. And he had taken it to every medical school interview that he had. <laughs> and it brought him a feeling of confidence because it was a gift from somebody that he knew was near and dear to me. Oh. And I think... You know, you've touched me on an individual level. Oh. You've touched the United States on a profound level. And I'm so grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for the leadership that you've provided to our nation and the leadership you, that you continue to provide. You're on uh, many boards. You're on many large stages. And you've never stopped giving back uh, oh. to the local community, to the individual veteran <laughs> on the sidewalk, or to a landmark report that changes the way people think across the nation. Uh, so from my perspective, you are one of the great Americans. Well, Chris, that's very nice of you, but uh, 
uh, no greater than you and all you do from your vantage point. And, uh, you know, you've got a great heart and you're smart. You sit on boards and you do a lot of great things as well. I mean, I'm just another another guy that was lucky and, uh, you know, luck is the intersection of opportunity and preparedness. I lucked out. I'm happy to be able to do all of those things. But tell me, how is your son doing? And did he give you the coin back? He kept the coin. Okay. And I asked him to keep it because it was important to him. And he's doing great. He's in a second year of medical school, and he ended up with lots of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And here's another one for you. Uh, so you don't have to you don't have to share it with your son anymore. And tell the doctor to be uh, my congratulations. Thank you. Well, uh, this will go right on my desk. And this has been a great conversation today uh, with Dr. Richard Carmona. It's been a pleasure to spend time with you, as it always is. We've known each other for many, many years, and the friendship is deeply important to me. That's our show for today. I'm Chris Grant, your host. I want to thank you for listening to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. You can stream our podcast by visiting Permanente.org or by subscribing on either iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. So pleasure. Oh, it's great. Thank you. You're awesome. A lot of fun. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and are not necessarily the views of Kaiser Permanente, the Permanente Medical Groups, or the Permanente Federation.